Hi listeners, welcome to a new episode of the David Crit Podcast. My name is Britt, and today we are continuing our series on William Kentridge's art by focusing on the presence of birds in Kentridge's work. Here we present to you a collection of thoughts and writings about birds and the making of them, taken from publications on the artist's work. In 1998, William Kentridge was commissioned to produce The Magic Flute, an opera created by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, which debuted in Vienna in 1791. The story follows Prince Tomino and his comical companion, the birdcatcher Papagino, on their quest to rescue Pamina, the daughter of the Night Queen, from captivity under the high priest Sarastro. Instead of achieving an escape from Sarastro, Tomina and Papagino, along with Pamina, learn the high ideals of Sarastro, undergoing severe trials of initiation into the community. Ultimately, the queen and her cohorts are vanquished. Papagino fails the trials completely, but is rewarded anyway with the hand of his ideal earthly companion, Papagina. The book William Kentridge Flute, published by David Crit Publishing in 2006, traces the creative project of Kentridge's production of the opera and its relationship to its dark progeny, Black Box. Kentridge's somber masterpiece about the massacre of the Herero people in southwest Africa, now in Namibia, at the beginning of the 20th century. The following two readings come from the book. The first is an extract from an interview between Kentridge and Bronwyn Law Falloon. The second comes from an essay written by Kate McCrickard, I Am the Birdcatcher, which traces the motif of birds in Kentridge's work over a period of time. In one of the many notes you have made about the magic flute, you make mention of the modernist conception of the stream of consciousness, which is often attributed to William Falconer, but in fact goes back to William James and other proto-psychologists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Serendipitously, for our discussion of the opera that has, as one of its central characters, a birdcatcher, James likens consciousness to a bird's life that is made up of alterations between flight and perching, between fluttering movement and stillness, an alteration that is also expressed in the rhythmic movements of language itself. The attempt to separate the parts of thought would be, James argues in a series of delicate figures of speech, like trying to cut a cross section through thought or like trying to catch a snowflake in the warm hand. To what extent do your projections in the magic flute reflect a reification of thought? And would you say that your conception of thought is close to James's idea of thought as somewhat chaotic, leaping from one thing to the next, stimulated by first one impulse and then another? Thinking is much more the insects and small midges flying through the air that the bird as consciousness, not the same as thought, lights on and moves between, picking up this one and suddenly noticing that one. So in other words, there are all sorts of chains of association that are invisible to the eye, or like small fish in a stream just below the surface. It is not as if there is simply the bird flying and that is thought. Thought may follow one particular path, but there are all the other paths not taken and all the other paths still being thought through or not yet thought of that language can latch onto at different stages as it goes. Which is why I have not talked of a stream of consciousness that is solitary but diffuse but rather a highway of consciousness where you have a channel, but many different lanes and different things moving in different lanes, overtaking, stopping, leaving the highway. 
But to return to James, the bird is in the magic flute because the libretto calls for it. We have a bird catcher and we have the character of the Egyptian god, Horus, the falcon, the bird of reason. In Papagino's first aria, the presence of the birds becomes an extension of drawing and, insofar as drawing is about thinking, they are related to thinking. But they weren't done with any idea that they would represent thought. The projections were very much at the heart of the production, but as one of the many ways of giving expression to the argument of the opera, rather than as a manifestation or reification of thought. The argument has to do with questions of light and darkness and, within the strict trajectory of the story, light triumphing over darkness. The projections are not the triumph of one over the other, but their complete necessity for each other. An image only makes sense because of the shadows in it. Without shadows, projections are meaningless. Without some light, shadows are inconceivable. So, insofar as the polemic of the opera goes, it is about a messy, mixed state of things between darkness and enlightenment. It has to do with an overall feeling I have, that wherever there is the certainty of light, there is a big stick behind it, and that maintaining a train of certainty of pure light is only possible when there is violence. Although Kentridge aligns himself with Papagino, the opera's buffoon and the only real comic relief, a character enslaved by bodily needs for food, drink and sex, his association is really with the bird itself. Max Ernst, in his masterpiece Une Semaine de Bonté, a surrealist collage novel made in 1934 around the time of Hitler's rise to power, shows bird-headed men in suits fleeing an unidentified terror, locked up in nightmarish interiors and committing sadistic acts. Ernst was an early member of the Dada cultural movement that began in 1916 in Zurich and concentrated its anti-war politics against the bourgeois barbarism of World War I. The Dadaists provided an ironic commentary on systematic order, reason and logic and the carnage they believed such ideology wreaked. They rejected logic to embrace anarchy and irrationality. Mozart and Schikaneder idealized the Enlightenment's related philosophies of order and awakening in the magic flute, while Kentridge is alert to its darker side, most terribly realized by Robespierre, who is said to have described himself as Sirostro, and the terror of the French Revolution. In both the Bird Catching series and Man and Dove from the Magic Flute series, in a lighter, almost vaudevillian fashion, Kentridge suggests the danger in Sirostro's monopoly of knowledge and power, echoing Ernst's notions of artistic, cultural and societal imprisonment on the eve of World War II. A finely etched line is visible, scored within the boundaries of the plate edges indicating either a picture frame or a cage for both human and birds. The giant bird itself may replace the cage and raises the question of who is really caught. However, although similarities can be drawn and Kentridge seems to be saying, like Ernst, that it is the rational world that makes such atrocities as the Holocaust thinkable, his prints engage the romance, anarchy and childlike release of Papagino that are remote from the surreal madness of Ernst's Kafkaesque birdmen. Kentridge's association with the image of the bird continues in another series, The Magic Flute Doves in which 10 states of a dove are drawn in dry point and carborundum and printed from one plate. An animated dove is shown in stages of flight, wings outstretched with pentimenti marks from previous states, leaving traces of the dove moving through time on the copper. This process of erasure and redrawing makes the dove seem as though it is turning in on itself with wings beating downwards, struggling, trapped within the parameters of the plate. 
The final state of the series presents a still bird drawn in clean dry point, the thick carborundum that formed the body of the dove in the inceptive drawing, polished out with a burnisher, leaving the history of dramatic motion as a vigorous ground beneath. This extract from the book, That Which We Do Not Remember, with Jane Taylor, relates to a series of prints called Bird Catching from the Magic Flute, created in 2006. The first portion is Kentridge's own writing about the suite of prints. This is followed by thoughts from Jane Taylor on the presence of birds in Kentridge's work. An etching is the record of damage done. It leaves the traces of the damage done to the copper plate. Every abrasure, every line etched into it, every biting bitten into the copper by an acid is there. It is held and will be released as evidence when the print is made. In a way, the etching is a hard negative, a negative in copper, rather than the familiar chemical processing of a photographic negative to make the positive print. Here, there is the inking, the hand wiping, the dampening of the paper, and the sending of the paper through the press. This reveals not the tonal opposite of the negative, but rather the mirror opposite of the negative plate. It's a kind of alchemy of copper, catching the time of the hand with the burin or engraving tool or dry point needle that was used to gouge into the copper to leave a mark of damage. Everything is held in the copper, whether it is Papagino jumping to catch birds or the birds in flight, it is about capturing time, the time of making in the copper. The birds are all taken from the pages of Robert's Birds of Southern Africa, an ornithological guidebook that shows that one can most effectively capture the bird as species in a watercolour rather than a photograph. Any photograph will represent the bird as an individual, with its own tail feathers, its own curious cap of inky black markings, its own beak. The photographs give the detail of the specific individual, but not the generic character of the bird group, which is where the drawings succeed. But still, I wish these were better portraits of birds. For some years, Kentridge has been engaged in making portraits of birds. One significant hyperrealist work, almost forensic in its observation, was a massively upscale drawing of a dead dove that had been found in the garden. In recent years, Kentridge has made several bird portraits of varying wit and elegance, often with rapid but deft brushstrokes and marks that gesture towards classes of birds, but that resist the imperative to be any individual one. More recently, much of his attention has been diverted from the bird study to the exploration of birds in flight. One might postulate that classification and migration have been folded into a single question of the fixing of identity. Other Faces is a recent film that develops these inquiries through looking at the autobiography in relation to lineage, mobility, generation and geography. It uses the flight of birds as a key metaphor for the figurative with regard both to memory and person. This extract comes from the book called Notes Toward a Model Opera, which contains notebooks detailing the birth of Kentridge's China project, which has the same name. The project was realized on the occasion of his retrospective at the Ulins Center for Contemporary Art, Beijing. In the notebooks, the reader can observe Kentridge's affinity for mingling the absurd with the coherent and the personal with the political, resulting in a film project that spins a web of connections among the Cultural Revolution in China, the Paris Commune, Africa's colonial history and the workings of individual memory.
Peripheral thought number seven, a death of sparrows. This is peripheral thought number seven. Peripheral thoughts number five and six are absent. This peripheral thought precedes the main event. In 1952, as part of the Great Leap Forward, China's project of modernization, Mao declared war on the four bads, flies, mosquitoes, rats, and sparrows, specifically the Eurasian tree sparrow that ate seeds planted for the harvest. Killing the sparrows would boost food production. Tens of millions of sparrows were killed, but the sparrows had fed not only on seeds, but also on immature locusts, and there was a plague of locusts. Crops were devastated. Through this and other equally ill-advised decisions, between 20 and 30 million Chinese died of starvation. The technique that Mao chose for the extermination of the sparrows was mass mobilization of the peasants. They were instructed to rise before dawn and bang on their pots and pans to frighten the birds out of the trees and then keep beating their pots and pans whenever the birds tried to land, so that in the end the birds would fall out of the sky with exhaustion. The efficacy of this method of species extermination is disputed, but the death of the sparrows, the flourishing of the locusts and the famine is not. The disasters of the Great Leap Forward lowered Mao's standing and power in China and the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution can be described as Mao's attempt, successful, to regain supreme position in the country. This periphery can be spread wider in several ways, to the question that was marginal then, but which is unavoidable now, of the false idea of thinking we can rearrange nature as we please. The revolutionary project of redeeming all humans at whatever cost is shown to be unaffordable. Here, the sparrows can stand in for any number of sins of pride and false confidence around the world, but that is for another project. What holds me here in this story of the Eurasian tree sparrow are the pots and pans, a line that jumps forward to the Arab Spring of recent years and back to China, particularly to the protests of Gezi Park and Taksim Square in Istanbul, where beating of pots and pans became a symbol of ungovernability and revolt, a bringing of the domestic to the larger political. To return into the studio, everything has to happen twice. To have two resonances, a provocation in the studio and an echo in the world outside. Here, an invitation to work with pots and pans, percussion, rhythms of protest, a raw material waiting to be used, and an outside sense in the link of the domestic to the political, of private biography meeting large histories. The copper or aluminium base of the pots becomes the membrane between the hopes, desires, fears of those whose pots they are and the world beyond them. A membrane between the personal and political, between hope and the tear gas and bullets of the authorities. We are off the wall and into the centre of the studio, an insistence in the face of the big idea. We are here and will be heard. And that does it for today's episode. The David Crit Podcast is a production of David Crit Projects. Production, editing and mixing were done by Hagen Gassi. Narration and research provided by Jacqueline Flint. Until next time, I'm Britt Lawton.